Uh, The passage from which the sermon comes this morning is in Luke chapter 9, verses 23 to 27. A short but loaded and yet well-known passage. Uh, So one of the big issues in our contemporary world, you know, I don't need to tell you, is how uh, each of us uh, may or should or must self-identify. We're all aware of the uh, crazy conversations and arguments about gender identity and and an identity based on sexual proclivities, Uh, but that's just part of a much larger concern uh, with personal freedom and integrity, with what has been called for a long time uh, the notion of being authentic. Uh, So uh, uh, Carl Truman's uh, amazingly wise and insightful book is called uh, The Rise and the Triumph of the Modern Self. And so he's getting at the question of the self. Um, We are told to find ourselves, to embark upon efforts of self-discovery, to develop self-esteem, self-awareness, and self-confidence, and we're supposed to be empowered by self-expression. And and I want to suggest that all of us are complicit in this uh, to one degree or another. I mean, we might not be involved in some of the more insane conversations, uh, but still, uh, we identify, and we identify ourselves by our uh, nationalities, we identify ourselves by our uh, regional uh, preferences, uh, northerners and southerners. It's kind of fun to bounce between the two and to live amongst northerners who have deep suspicions about you guys uh, who live in the south and then to move to the south and find uh, that the same suspicion exists about those uh, Yankees uh, living up there in New England. Um, We are identified by our colleges. I've been challenged already on a couple of occasions down here by my Florida State license plate. Uh, People want to know what that is supposed to mean. Uh, I remember a Scottish pastor one time being asked, after he had been here many years, when he was going to uh, get his U.S. citizenship, wouldn't that be the proper goal? And uh, and he said, now why would I want to do that? Uh, I'm a Scot, and uh, I have no desire to have American citizenship. Well, the notion of the self looms very large in this passage. Uh, If you are paying attention to Greek, some of you do, I know that. Um, The word uh, psyche or psyche, uh, where we get our word psychology, exists uh, in this passage. It's translated as life uh, in verse 24. Uh, In other passages in the New Testament, it's translated as the word soul, Uh, In Matthew's version of this saying, uh, where uh, uh, he says, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And then Matthew uh, quotes the next verse saying, for what benefit, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? And Eugene Peterson paraphrases this in the message as your true self. Uh, so that's, that's what's taking place in the passage. I think Peterson is right about that. And, and certainly it, it's part of the way that we're encouraged to think. What is your true self? Is your true self something that you have to discover? Uh, is it something that's intrinsic uh, to who you are? Uh, we need to pay very close attention to what Jesus is saying here about your true self. Now, as mentioned last week, chapter 9 is in a sense the turning point of the Gospel of Luke. 
Jesus is heading to Jerusalem, and there he's uh, let them know that he's going to be betrayed, rejected, uh, killed, and then raised. Uh, And in these chapters, Jesus is focused, these ensuing chapters, from 9 on, Jesus is focused more or less on preparing his disciples, getting them ready uh, for his death and and his eventual departure from them. And similarly, I think, uh, we at Carriage Lane uh, can pay attention to these passages uh, as we prepare uh, for a new uh, era in the life of the church uh, with a new uh, senior pastor. So immediately following uh, Jesus' first revelation of his destiny, uh, up there in verses 21 and 22, uh, Jesus follows up with this charge. Uh, The chapter began... Uh, back beginning of chapter 9, Jesus sent the disciples out on uh, a mission trip. Uh, they were out on an evangelism project. They reported back to him that things had gone well. The crowd started to gather. Earlier in the chapter, Jesus fed with five loaves and two fish over 12,000 people. And so the, the crowds are teeming. They're gathering, increasing, and many are interested in coming after Jesus. That's the, that's the setup. And here's what he says. Uh, I'm reading now from verse 23 down to verse 27. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. So, Jesus says to those who are gathering, to those who have been fed, this is very similar to what happens in John chapter 6, everyone loves a free meal. Uh, everyone loves the idea of being taken care of, uh, and they've just been fed, and he turns to them, and he says to all of them, uh, to every one of them, if any one of them, so it's a universal charge, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. So it's basically a threefold charge, three things that Jesus is telling these who want to come after him that they need to do. They need to deny themselves. They need to take up their cross daily, uh, and then thirdly, they need to follow him. So let's, let's muse on these three things. Uh, first, self-denial. Now, uh, in all of these things, we have to take account uh, for the differences in the way that we think and the, the way that they thought. We think in essentially individualistic categories. We're an individualistic society. They were a communal society. And so when we think of self-denial, our immediate thought goes to um, private piety. We're individualists, hardcore, it's our meat and drink, especially for us Americans. Maybe folks from more traditional cultures would not resonate with this as much as we Americans do. Uh, But Jesus' listeners were much more like a traditional culture. Uh, We think of self-denial individualistically, privately, uh, and that would have been foreign Uh, to those in that society at the time. So again, we think of private piety, you know, we tend to think of self-denial as the removal of pleasure, 
and uh, a certain asceticism. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. Uh, but in fact, self-denial is essential to Christian faith. Right at the very outset of what it means to be a Christian, what it means to believe in Jesus is to admit that you have no power to save yourself. So there is self-denial going on even at the outset if you're considering to become a Christian. You have no power on your own to live in a way that pleases God. Uh, You do not have the resources to purchase your redemption. Uh, So self-denial becomes an admission that God's ways are higher than your ways and that you need to be quiet and listen. So at the very foundation of what it means to be a Christian is a certain kind of self-denial. Now, by extension... It becomes the way that life is lived in the kingdom of God. The way that life is lived in the kingdom of God is by virtue of self-denial. And we have to think about what that means. Um, I know that you studied recently, or at least I think the men's group did, Calvin's little book on the Christian life. I don't know if you've seen this. It's a wonderful publication. It keeps getting republished with uh, more and more contemporary language and the latest one out uh, done by a couple of PCA ministers, I think, uh, is really very well done. And it really is just, uh, I think, four or five chapters from his institutes that are excerpted out. And, uh, and, and he starts off, and it's actually the second chapter, uh, saying that what it means to be a Christian uh, is to be invested in self-denial. Uh, so, and he, he says that it's a glorious and wonderful thing. Let me, I'm going to quote Calvin. Uh, and he's, he's, he's talking about the end of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You know that passage where uh, the apostle says, you are not your own, you were bought with a price. Uh, it's a wonderful kind of cornerstone verse. You were not your own, you were bought with a price. And so Calvin says, this is a marvelous thing. We are consecrated and dedicated to God to the end that we might not think, speak, meditate, or act unless it be to his glory. If we are not our own but the Lord's, it is clear what errors we must flee and what we must direct our whole lives toward. We are not our own, therefore, neither our reason nor our will should dominate our plans and actions. We are not our own. Therefore, let us not make the gratification of our flesh our end. We are not our own. Therefore, as much as possible, let us forget ourselves and our own interests. And he thought that was a glorious thing. It's interesting, 25 years later, after Calvin wrote that, uh, the Heidelberg Catechism was published. And uh, I don't know how well you know the Heidelberg Catechism, but the first question and answer are uh, pretty famous. Uh, The first question is, what is your only comfort in life and in death? Have you heard this before? And the answer is, my only comfort in life and in death is that I am not my own but belong body and soul in life and in death, not to myself, but to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood. He has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Uh, That is a glorious, poetic, uh, gripping, and attractive 
way of saying deny yourself. Uh, deny yourself because you are not your own, you were bought with a price. I think that one of the ways that we could put this is very simply to say, and this is in the vernacular, get over yourself. Get over yourself. That's self-denial. If anyone wants to come after Jesus, you need to get over yourself. The second thing that he says is you need to take up your cross daily. If anyone would come after me, let him take up his, take up his cross daily and follow me. <clears throat> Again, we need to strip away common understandings. We have in, in English and in American sensibilities this notion of bearing one's cross. And usually what we mean by that is minor inconveniences or serious inconveniences. Uh, but we talk about some particular struggles or inconveniences, and, so, and we say, well, that's just my cross to bear. You know, that's the difficulty that I have to deal with, the pain that I have to absorb through my life. That's not what is being talked about here. And this is where, in some senses, you've you got to get pretty graphic and pretty gruesome, and any conversation about the cross is going to be R-rated. You know, it's going to be something that gets a, uh, what, what do they call it, TV, MA, or whatever they call it. Uh, Mel Gibson tried to do a movie about this several years ago where he tried to be as explicit as possible, and people, you know, reported, the critics came back and said, way, way too gruesome, way too much blood. And, and maybe so, you know, under the guise of entertainment, it was that. But in fact, in reality... Uh, a crucifixion was a horrendous uh, ignominy, and it's hard for us to comprehend just how brutal it was, and it's hard for us to understand just how despicable it was. Uh, in the ancient world, it was not simply execution, uh, but it was execution preceded by torture, and what it was mainly used for in the Roman Empire was to send a message to slaves and potential rebels um, what awaited them, you know, should they enact their rebellion. Should the slave seek to escape uh, his slavery, this is what awaited him. I think you know that no Roman citizen uh, would ever be subject to crucifixion. And in fact, the details of what it meant to be crucified are not anywhere recorded. Uh, there's plenty of recordings that crucifixions took place, but the details of that, again, were so unseemly, so horrendous, so ignominious, that it was never really spelled out until the first century when four such accounts came out, and we learned the details of what a crucifixion was. It was contemptible. And so when Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross, the only picture that anyone would have had uh, is the picture of a slave uh, or a foreigner, some other kind of rebel to the Roman Empire, carrying the crossbeam. They didn't really carry the whole cross, but carrying the crossbeam on the way to his torture and execution. Now that's horrific, but there's one word here that makes it worse still, uh, and the word is daily. It's the nature of crucifixion, nature of execution, that it can only happen once. Uh, but what Jesus says is that if anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross daily. Uh, this is going to happen every day, he says. This is going to happen day after day. 
if you would come after me. Uh, as the saying goes, one day at a time. And it is to embrace what Jesus has just described as being his destiny. He has said that he's going to Jerusalem. He hasn't specified yet that it's a cross. Uh, but they will come to understand that it means to be joined to him uh, in the fellowship. The, Paul writes it, joined to him in the fellowship of his sufferings. That's the way Paul described it. And Paul described it as a matter of honor, uh, that he was delighted, that he rejoiced to participate and to join Jesus in the fellowship of his sufferings as well as in the power of his resurrection. <clears throat> so Jesus had just said that his destiny was to be rejected and killed. He tells his disciples that the same is their destiny. And so it's a mistake for us to think that because Jesus suffered, I don't suffer. Now, it is true to say that because Jesus suffered the wrath of God for sin, I don't suffer that. But don't extend that into the rest of life because Jesus is saying just the opposite. He's saying that if I suffer, you will suffer. If I bear a cross, you also, if you would come after me, will bear a cross. And then lastly, he simply says, and follow me, uh, I won't spend a lot of time on that. It's roughly similar to coming after Jesus. But it does have a communal sensibility. And, uh, and some of the um, uh, apprehensions or, the, or the, the, the ways in which following is thwarted come up at the end of the chapter. Uh, and we'll get there. Uh, the compromises that people are tending to make when it comes to following Jesus will present themselves. And Jesus will deal with them there. Um, but it's important not to misunderstand this, what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, if anyone would come after me, every, any one of you, and, and he does say later, and I think it's even in this chapter, uh, that it's impossible to be his disciple unless you do. So there's no shade of discipleship where he's saying that the, the really top-notch disciples will deny themselves and take up their cross daily, but the rest of you can kind of cruise along. He's not saying that. If you want to be a disciple, this is your lot in life. But it's important not to misunderstand it. And I think there are two primary misunderstandings. Uh, some have imagined in the history of the church that this implies asceticism, uh, that this implies uh, becoming a monk or becoming a nun, uh, that the only way that you could really do this and be honest about it would be to retreat entirely uh, from society. Uh, but that's just not true. It's not true in the history of the church, and it's certainly not true to the larger scope of what God is calling his people to do. We are called to life's normal pursuits. Waking, sleeping, working, playing, eating and drinking, we do all of that. Uh, but we do it to the glory of God with gratitude to him for all of those things. We go shopping while we bear the cross. We play golf while we are denying ourselves. We take vacations while following Jesus. It certainly alters the way that we do all of those things. It does inform the way that we do those things, but it doesn't eliminate them. We don't simply retreat. Uh, the other mistake to make, and this is true in, in all of God's commands, is that we tend to imagine these as definitive actions rather than something that is ongoing and progressive. Remember one of my sons had a big fall one time. He, he lied and he got caught and he was subversive and 
you know, and, the, and he, he just got busted on it. And it troubled him so profoundly uh, that it was hard for him to kind of lift his head up. And I remember talking to him and saying, look, the, the, what we have as Christians is not this notion of you become a Christian and then you're perfect. That's, that's not what we have. You know, what we have is a cycle of repentance and forgiveness that we carry through all the rest of our lives. Repentance and faith, repentance and faith, breathing in and breathing out. Our legacy is not a legacy of innocence, it's a legacy of redemption. So the Christian life is basically a long slog. There's sometimes a glorious break with conversion, there's sometimes a glorious break with rapid acceleration in Christian growth, and some bodies will describe a second blessing or a third blessing. Uh, If there was an altar call, you could come several times you know, and respond to that and say, I'm now recommitting. And there can be glorious breakthroughs, but, <clears throat> but it is always a cycle of repentance and faith. And so some of you read this and say, I need to become a Christian, and this is my lot, and I need to decide whether or not I'm going to respond to this. But some of you say, I already am a Christian, and I need to re-engage with what Jesus is calling me to do here. So that's the threefold charge that Jesus gives. I want to talk now about the rationale and then the consequences. Here's the rationale in verse 24. For whoever would, lose, would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Now this is kind of fascinating what's going on. Jesus has said if you want to be my disciple you need to be all in. But he's not saying that so as to bolster his authority. He's not saying that so that you will make sure to know who's boss. Uh, He is offering um, salvation. He's offering freedom. He's offering all of the stuff that is essentially good for you. And that's part of what's going on in the offer of the gospel. You know, part of the offer of the gospel is you need to repent and believe But another part of the offer of the gospel is, if anyone is hungry or thirsty, let him come to me and be satisfied. So, I mean, I hate to kind of put it this way, but there is a shade of this. Jesus is saying, this is all for your good. Let me tell you how to pursue the good, how to pursue the things that you need. Uh, Nothing could be more contemporary, more relevant to current quests for self than what Jesus is saying here. He says, your quests for self-discovery, for self-assertion, for empowerment are doomed. If you save your life, you will lose it. If you find a way to be empowered, if you find a way to self-discovery, it will destroy you. Now, a lot of people are going to tell you that they've succeeded in their self-discovery. And they are recounting it on Instagram and on TikTok. And what Jesus is saying here, and what I will tell you based on what Jesus is saying, is they are mistaken. And their boasts are like smoke. If you try to save your soul, you will lose it. And what losing it looks like is readily apparent as we read the news and as we read the accounts of the way that these things 
shake down and fall apart. Uh, there was a, a, an author, kind of a tortured guy, uh, sadly uh, is not alive anymore, but a brilliant author in his day named David Foster Wallace. Have you heard that name before? Okay, nobody's uh, enthusiastically jumping up and down. Um, he's, he's fun to read. Uh, he said this thing. He gave a, a commencement address at Oberlin College, and, uh, and this is so on target that I think every RUF staff worker that came through our church in Cambridge quoted it, and I had to put a ban on it. And, uh, and I would tell people, you're not allowed to quote that anymore. If you haven't heard it, I'm going to give it to you, and if you have, forgive me. Uh, but at that commencement speech, he said this. He said a lot of other things, but he said this. If money and things are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. If your own body and beauty and sexual allure are where you tap real meaning in life, you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. If power... You will feel weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to keep fear at bay. If your intellect is the place where you tap real meaning in life, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid and a fraud and always on the verge of being found out. And he says, and so on. If those are the places where you pursue your life, if those are the places where you think you're tapping in to your true self, you are going to be destroyed. You're going to be disappointed, but you're going to be destroyed. It will wipe you out. Jesus offers you a wonderful alternative. If you deny self, if you die with Jesus, and if you embrace him and follow him, you will, he says, save your soul. That's an interesting turn of a phrase, isn't it? We often think of salvation in a passive voice. You will be saved. I will be saved. I was saved. The way that Jesus puts it here, whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. It is good and satisfying and deeply resonant to be able to say with the apostle, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Uh, may, many of you have memorized that. It's worth memorizing. Uh, I think it needs to be asserted more strenuously. I think that the phrase Son of God is always meant to imply the deity of Christ. And so I've, I've said this in the past that whenever you read the word Son of God, in, in your brain you need to be shouting it. The life that I now live, in the flesh I live by faith, in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Who loved me and gave himself for me. That's what Jesus is inviting you to here when he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily. And then the consequences, and I know that this sends a shiver through the hearts of all of us. Uh, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and the holy angels. Um, 
basically what it's saying is that a consummation is coming, and with it, a judgment is coming. Uh, uh, the life that Jesus lived and to which he calls his disciples is the opposite of humanity's nat- natural inclinations. It invites ridicule. It invites people saying, that's kind of a dumb thing to do. That's kind of stupid. Uh, and it would even make one who's not fully invested in it a little bit ashamed to be connected with it. And we've seen that. We've seen people not fully invested who eventually become ashamed of it and step away from it. And so Jesus issues these stark words. Now again, I want to say that the Christian life was a long slog. All of us at one point or another could be rightly accused of having been ashamed of Jesus. Uh, But we are invited to repent of that. Uh, We're invited to turn away from that. Uh, and rather than be ashamed, be very forthright and be fully invested. But what's interesting here, you know, when I read whoever's ashamed of me, I start cowering uh, and think, woe is me, woe is me, and I forget to read the rest of the verse. Uh, And again, Jesus asserts himself as the Son of Man, uh, probably not as glorious and loud as Son of God, um, but He, oath, by the way, implies that a day is coming when he will come in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. And we ought to just take a moment and say, that's going to be quite a day. That's going to be quite a day. And and we ought to um, live in the light of that day. That day really is coming. Encourage one another with this thing. There is a day coming when Jesus is going to appear in his glory and in the glory of his Father and that of the holy angels. And then lastly, he has this, you know, curious thing about those not, some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom. All of the scholars agree that that's uh, just the precursor to the transfiguration. So uh, this kingdom, we live in light of the fact that Jesus is going to come again in glory. That is a kingdom that is entered by faith, and that's a kingdom that Peter, James, and John are going to see. And we'll look at that next week when they see Jesus transfigured on the mountain. The rest are going to see it when the Spirit comes at Pentecost and propels the gospel to the end of the earth. So uh, we'll, we'll pick that up uh, next week. So in this passage, this is Jesus' recruitment speech. This is the way that he's recruiting his disciples. You go by the recruitment office of uh, one of the military branches, and they sit down and outline what it's going to look like for you to be in the military. They might cover up a little bit about the difficulty of it. They might make great promises of the benefits. Uh, But Jesus is very straightforward. Uh, We might say at least he's being honest, but that's short-sighted and profane, actually. Uh, Jesus is telling the truth because he is the truth. He can't help but tell the truth. And and in fact, you know, we ought to note um, that on the question of who Jesus is, and remember that's the question that's in this chapter. Uh, It actually started the chapter before when the disciples, after Jesus calmed the storm, said, who is this? And then Herod earlier in the chapter, who is this that I'm hearing about? And Jesus puts the question to the disciples, Who do people say that I am and who do you say that I am? On on that question, 
This is one of the many passages in the Bible that demonstrate that Jesus is not a great moral teacher. The way we think of great moral teachers. You'll never find a great moral teacher insisting that his followers sacrifice all for his sake in preparation for his appearing in glory with all the holy angels. That's not what moral teachers propound. Uh, So the invitation is here, again, if you're not a Christian, Jesus is being being very straightforward, and he's saying uh, you need to come, and you need to understand that in coming you will die. Uh, This is the cornerstone of of, um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's The Cost of Discipleship. Uh, When Jesus bids us come, he bids us come and die. Uh, If you are a Christian, uh, it would not surprise me to find that you have forgotten this. Uh, that this has slipped your mind. Uh, But here we are uh, being reminded of it again. Uh, Jesus is certainly ready to receive you. He's certainly ready uh, to, um, as a good shepherd who finds a lost sheep, uh, call for a party, uh, call for a celebration. Uh, He is ready for you to turn back and say, this is what I need uh, to deny self, to take up my cross daily, and to follow. And today we come to a table, uh, a table wherein we tell the truth, a table wherein we are honest uh, with ourselves. Uh, We have been talking a little bit in the Sunday school classes about uh, the importance of the sacraments because this is a truth-telling moment. Just as baptism is a truth-telling moment when you find out whether or not you're a Christian and you say, I am a Christian, or for the kids who are being baptized, their parents say, we are Christians and we are fully on board with this, well, at at this table, the same thing is happening. Uh, You are admitting that you do not have the resources of your own that you need to the end of eternal life. Uh, But what you are saying is, I need to be fed. What you are saying is, I'm putting all of my hope and all of my trust in Jesus. And and if, if that can happen, then come joyfully. This is a table for Christians. It's a table for those that have been baptized who are part of a local church. I want to be clear about that. And if you're not, if you're not a Christian, then I want politely uh, to ask you to forego uh, participation in this table. Now, we'd love to remedy that, and we'd love to talk to you afterwards. But the Bible's pretty clear that there is a potency, there is a spiritual, mystical potency to this table uh, in such that those who receive it by faith are really nourished, are really transformed, are really aided and fueled in their sanctification. You will be changed incrementally in a tiny little way when you come to this table because there's that kind of spiritual authority in the table. But it works the other way as well. Uh, That if you take this as an unbeliever, if you mock it, Uh, then there is a judgment uh, that descends because it's that important. So let me pray before we uh, come, before we receive the supper. Father in heaven, what a gift uh, that you have given us. Uh, What a prize has been offered. And, And what a great thing that Jesus is the truth and does not shy away from the truth and that he makes known to us 
the relentless and exacting nature of what it means to come to him. We've often cheapened that. Uh, But here at the supper, when we remember the night that Jesus was betrayed, it becomes much more clear. And we want very much, as Christians, uh, to fully embrace, be fully invested, such that we are not ashamed, and such that we have energy to deny self, to take up cross, a cross daily, and to be crucified with Christ and follow him. So please, uh, give us your grace, uh, give us the Holy Spirit to that end, and use these elements in a supernatural way, in Jesus' name, amen.